0: wisdom. What are we seeking when we seek wisdom? And and where do we go to get it, to grow in it, to acquire it? Well, Boston uh, has been called the, the education college capital of the U.S. for good reason. Every year, tens of thousands of students descend upon Boston to attend and study at one of the dozens and dozens of colleges and universities here. And students, of course, have been coming here for a long time, longer than any other place in the US, having Harvard here, the first school of the nation, and Harvard Yard being where it all started. And the other day I was driving by Harvard Yard and I was um, looking at the different gates that go into Harvard Yard, and one of them is called the Dexter Gate. And on the gate, if you enter it, there's there's an inscription on the crest. And it says, enter to grow in wisdom. And so I decided I would walk through. (laughs) See what happened. (laughs) Did I feel anything growing? And of course, it takes longer than that. More effort. But on the way out, you get to see the reverse side of the inscription. Depart to serve better thy country and thy kind, that would be growing in wisdom if you knew how to do that. So, what are we seeking usually when we seek wisdom? The late uh, French philosopher Jean Louis Chrétien, who I've quoted before, who's a, who is a serious Christian, he asks and answers this question in this book titled "Under the Gaze of the Bible." which is a great enough title in itself we could talk about, but he writes uh, this, or at least this is a translation of what he wrote in French. What is one really seeking when one seeks wisdom or when one claims to seek it? Today, as in former times, it quite often amounts to a quest for peace and security. In so far as these two things sheltering us as much as possible from the blows of fate and the hazards of destiny if only by allowing us to better bear them if they do happen might finally lead us to our personal fulfillment and happiness. I think that's that's pretty too pretty true. For example, I think what what drives a lot of us to go to school, to learn, to network is to Secure a job, to get job security is what we're after. And we're hoping that somehow this job is going to give us some measure of personal peace, fulfillment, happiness. And I don't think those are bad, evil things to desire. I think those are reasonable things to desire, good things. As long as they don't become the only thing we desire in our lives. As long as we can discern those times when wisdom calls us to deny ourselves those things for the sake of other desires, for the sake of serving our country and our kind and the kingdom of God. And I think this is especially pertinent in times of uncertainty and chaos, because these are the times when this desire for personal peace and security gets really intense. All-consuming can become what our life gets reduced to. It can be idolatrous. And when that happens, we need, we need the expansive, fuller wisdom of God. We need to learn from the one in whom is found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The one who doesn't just have God's wisdom, but is God's wisdom in the flesh i'm talking about jesus of course as paul put it in the last part of the the reading we heard this morning it wasn't on the screen but but adam read it loud and clear that jesus has become for us wisdom from god he is the one god has put us in wisdom from god So that was Paul's letter to his first letter to the Corinthian church. He says this about Jesus, but he also says not everybody sees Jesus in this way, at least not initially. Some people, in fact, see him and his way as foolishness, as folly. And especially if you look at this historically, which is what we're going to do some today. For the Jewish people, for example, God's anointed Messiah should be defeating the Romans, not getting killed by the Romans. For the Greeks, the wise don't get caught in such chaotic, terrible situations like crucifixion. They know how to avoid such things. And divine wisdom would certainly never willingly descend to something like death on a cross. That is foolishness to the Greek mindset at this time. But, Paul says, there are others who have come to know this Christ crucified as the power of God, in fact, and the wisdom of God. A power that liberates us from corruption for true living, a wisdom that expands our desires, changes them, challenges them, crucifies them too. And resurrects them. And a wisdom that challenges the wisdom, of course, of our day. So that wisdom says, these people who you've called unfortunate, the people named, listed in the Beatitudes we heard, people like the poor in spirit, the more, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are suffering because they're doing the right thing. He says, you might call those Unfortunate, but I call them blessed. The meek who Nietzsche once said embodied a slave morality. No, Jesus says, no, they're going to rule the earth. They're going to inherit the earth. A wisdom that exposes the folly of our culture and our own lives, if we let it, if we let him. A wisdom that reveals to us, makes clear to us the surprising way of God, the extravagant love of God for all. And a wisdom that teaches us, imparts to us, calls forth from us into that extravagant, that same extravagant love for all. There's there's no place for for Greek moderation here. (laughs) That's out of place. This is a wisdom that will give us our best thoughts by day or by night. I just finished reading the, the last two novels of, by Cormac McCarthy that just came out in the last few months. And because of that, I was also I was trying to figure out these books. <laughs> They're not easy to understand, so I was watching several interviews, whatever I could get from Cormac McCarthy, which is very little. He um, doesn't like to do interviews, but there's two really interesting one he did, ones he did at the Santa Fe Institute. The Santa Fe Institute is this top-notch science technology think tank that he loves to hang out with, or at. McCarthy himself is very well versed actually in science and physics and mathematics. And he says that he finds scientists and mathematicians and physicists really interesting people to befriend. And I think if you get to know the scientists and physicians and mathematicians in our midst, you would agree with them. During one of these interviews, though, these interviews, he gets talking, they get talking about why the Santa Fe Institute is in Mexico, in the desert, and they said, well, initially, it was because Oppenheimer went to school there, and I think it was, he was as a, a boy, he was going to summer school or something, and so they're like, ah, that's where we need to do it, but then they started talking about how the desert helps you think better, more clearly and how they talked about the history of, you know, some of the people who are doing just very serious thinking about life, for example, in monasteries, or a lot of great thinking began in mathematics in the desert. There's something about how austere it is that it, it brings focus, and it, uh, it keeps you from thinking about getting distracted by all the nonsense in life and helps you somehow think better Well, it got me to thinking, where is the place we go to do not just better thinking, but our best thinking? And that led me to the place, a place more austere, more desolate than a desert. To an old abandoned rock quarry that looks like a human skull, where they do executions. Of course, I'm talking about Golgotha where they crucified Jesus on a a Roman cross. This is the place that's going to free us from distractions like no other. This is the place that's going to give us our clearest, best thinking that we are capable of. And yet, when we walk away from this place, we might walk away limping, like Jacob after his struggle with the angel. This is an intense place. We come to die and live again in this place. But it's going to be with the wisdom, of course. That's well worth it. The chapter in the Cretchen book I quoted from earlier is, is titled, Learning Wisdom at the Foot of the Cross. Or we could go further and say, Learning from Wisdom at the Foot of the Cross. The degree to which Christians have done that is the degree to which our message has become credible and compelling throughout time. That's the truth. Which is important to keep in mind as we're talking about the mission of God, the family mission, about how and why we should demonstrate and talk about the kingdom of God, about who God is and what God has done in Christ We will be able to do that in incredible, compelling ways to the degree that we learn from wisdom at the foot of the cross. That's that's the truth of history. Well, the story of Tom Holland uh, bears witness to this, I think. And I'm not talking about the the actor who played Spider-Man, who did a great job. But... (laughs) I'm talking about the, the Oxford-trained historian and best-selling author. How he bears witness, this became apparent to me I was reading an article this past week about him written by uh, co-founder of Center for Pastoral Theology, Dr. Uh, Gerald Heastend. I can give you this article if you want it. It's a great article. But much of what I'm going to be sharing from here on out comes from this article for the most part. So Tom... Holland's upbringing was uh, a divided one actually his mother when he was young was a a devout I don't know if she's still alive but she was a devout Anglican Christian and his father was an atheist and I think this part of his story is true of all of us on a bigger scale if we've grown up in the west if you know your history and if you don't Tom Holland and someone like Charles Taylor will help us here (laughs) If we know our history, we know we have, we have these two parents. We have the church, and for lack of a better term, secularism, this, uh, this movement, this, these ideas, these practices, masses of people now who either ignore God or outright deny God. These are our two parents, so to speak. These are uh, the cross pressures we live in, it's the air we breathe. So it's very, to follow his life is a very interesting life to follow for that reason. Well, back to Tom Holland, who I'm just going to, I'm going to call Tom from now on. because I don't know him, but it's just easier and it feels better because we're talking about his story, not just his book. But um, Tom, he grew up, of course, going to church with his mother and hearing these Bible stories. But he was far more captivated with the imperial powers of Persia and Babylon and Rome than this humble suffering Jesus and his lowly band of followers. He wasn't impressed. He didn't see Christ crucified as the power of God, as the wisdom of God. His fascination was much more like his fascination with dinosaurs and great white sharks as he was fascinated with Rome and these superpowers that dominated the world. Well, in grade school, he read uh, Edward Gibbon's famous The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And this was a huge influence on him. And it was a book that portrayed Christianity as just basically this thing, these people that ushered in an age of superstition and deprived us really of all the best of Western culture. (laughs) Not flattering. Whereas the best of the Western culture, Glorious Days, these were rooted in Rome, of course, and Greek culture. Not, certainly, in a Jewish carpenter nailed to a cross. Well, with this influence, and and certainly, I'm sure, his father's influence, he walked away, eventually, from his mother's faith and on towards his father's atheism. He went on to Oxford to do his PhD in history, uh, but then dropped out because he needed some money, I think. (laughs) He started writing historical novels, which he was really good at and successful. He did go back eventually to do, finish his Ph.D. But after his novels, he started writing about Greco-Roman culture, that world. And this continued to fascinate him, again, like the white shark and the T-Rex as ultimate predators. But then, not surprisingly, this started to trouble him, too, this world. It was a brutal world. And it did not share what he un- understood to be his Western values. There was, a, there was a disconnect here. So, for example, in the West, ideally, ideally at least, the, the weak and the vulnerable should be cared for. That's the ideal at least. Where in the Roman world, they were despised, brutalized, oppressed. Might made right. Right. Well, this contrast became more stark and apparent with the Me Too movement when that arrived. And and he noticed in himself, as a man, this moral outrage against these women who were being abused when it was coming to light. And it got him to question, where did this come from? And not just in me, but in the wider Western culture. Where did this concern for women being abused come from? And because he said, it didn't come from, it certainly didn't come from, the Roman Greco world. Not at all. Powerful men abusing women was never questioned back then. That was a given, the norm. He wondered, so where did this come from? And again, not always in... Practice, but in principle. Where did this come from? This ideal that every person, including vulnerable women, have equal value and dignity, that they should be respected and treated appropriately. <clears throat> well, again, abuse and oppression can happen still and still does we hear too many stories but they always have to happen behind closed doors here in the west why because this ideal is so prevalent and accepted these kinds of things didn't need to be done behind closed doors back in the roman greco world they were unquestioned so his quest to this answer to this or his quest to answer this question resulted in his most recent book dominion where he wades through 2,500 years of history from ancient Athens to the present. And his answer, to his surprise, is Jesus on the cross. (laughs) Christ crucified. Christianity, he wrote, began a revolution that has, at its molten heart, the image of a god dead. On a cross and that changed everything this cruciform vision of power brought dignity and honor to the victim that was not a thing before to the marginalized to the oppressed to women to the poor it led to the idea that it's more noble to suffer than to cause suffering That seems normal to us, but it wasn't normal back in the day. This cruciform vision of power was what captured and transformed the heart and imagination and life of the Apostle Paul, as you can tell if you read any of his letters. And his life and his letters went on to inspire, of course, course, Christian devotion, first and foremost to the person, but also to the way of this Christ crucified which in turn went on to transform Greco-Roman culture into what we know in the West. He wrote that the old Greco-Roman order rooted in the assumption that any man in a position of power had the right to exploit his inferior had ended. Paul's insistence that the body of every human being was a holy vessel had triumphed. Now, it's a victory that, of course, started small, with just a few letters and a few Christians, but eventually, over time, affected the world. So there's an interview he has with N.T. Wright. Somebody's interviewing both of them. It's a really, it's a great interview to watch. But he likens the letters of Paul, these small group of letters, to like a depth charge dropped beneath the sea of the Greco-Roman Empire. And at first, nobody heard it or felt it. But the ripples have gone on through the centuries and have come to come to this point now where we can at least in theory say that every person is of equal value. Where we can have inscriptions that say, enter here to grow in wisdom and leave to serve thy country and thy kind. And that kind includes, should include everybody. When people get to know this and hear this and see this, it becomes compelling. And some people might even start going back to church when they hear this, like Tom Holland started to do. So he wrote about one of these times when he went to a church service. And he said it reminded him, this this one day in particular, reminded him of an R.S. Thomas poem when he was there. And it says this, in the poem, in the darkness that was about his hearers, a preacher caught fire and burned steadily before them with a strange light. And this is how this service was for him, he, he felt. The preacher was, was actually named the Reverend Anna Clare. Not our Anna, but could have been our Anna. <laughs> and he says this, he goes on, this is, I'm going to quote him from here on out. <clears throat> Everything, everything she said that early morning seemed to me lit by a Pentecostal fire. The readings had been on the baptism of Christ in the River Jordan, which we've been recently hearing about. And her preaching on it was visionary, scholarly, emotional, all at once. My eyes were open that morning as they had not previously been to this great tradition of Christian preaching, a tradition that has always had... Has, has always been particularly fundamental to Protestant Christianity. I'd been reading a lot about the spirit and the experience of grace. And that morning, I felt something that had descended on me like a fire, like the dove. That's another ripple effect of that depth charge which all started with the wisdom of God, with people like Paul and those early Christians who were learning from wisdom at the foot of the cross. May we join them there. Amen.